You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week we apologize to the 2010s by saying, sorry to bother you with a winner's tale. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam the Judge Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani. And shocker, this is my white voice. Usually it's not, hey, bippity boppity boopity. That's your normal voice. I mean, no, my normal voice is just the mama mia pizzeria. Look at me, hey, yeah. oh, get out my face, sit on it. That's that's what I usually sound like when I'm not on the mic because I act like a professional here. Um, but we aren't the only professionals here, Adam. Uh, coming in on his Pegasus that should be like gliding through the sky, but just kind of awkwardly lifts down onto the ice flow. Returning guest of ours, Casey Gerard. Casey, how are you? Hey, I'm here for the one episode of the season where I shall appear, a fan favorite, and I choose to believe that my alternate black voice would be Donald Glover. I mean, that's what we all want, technically. Um, like, but we can't get that. It has to be reserved for bad CG Simba. Yeah. Um, but Casey, you're on here uh, because this is the second part of our retrospective of the 2010s decade. Uh, we should mention that this is our first episode that's been released in the new year of 2020. So happy new year, new decade, everybody. Off to a rocky start. Off to a rocky start. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Name one horrible thing that happened in the last three days. <laughs> the last 24 hours. <laughs> I can name one. <laughs> I'll let you know, we've been on a real, real streak the last almost 30 minutes of not having something horrible happen. <laughs> that, that's true. As of right now, while we're recording, something um, amazing could happen at any point. Uh, but, Casey... You are here uh, because you really wanted to come on, talk about the decade, and Adam and I talked a bit about our thoughts about the decade in film for the 2010s, uh, but what are your uh, scorching hot takes about uh, the previous 10 years in film? I think the last 10 years have been the best decade that cinema's had since at least the 70s. Both the mainstream movies that came out have been significantly stronger, and not only have the has independent work been stronger, the places it could come from and the people who could make it is something that even 10 years ago would be unheard of. Could Tangerine have been made in 2008? Or would Steven Soderbergh be saying, God, I wish that back when I was starting, I just had an iPhone and could put half the movies I make onto Netflix. No, that's a very good point, especially technologically. We didn't even talk about that last time. Just with the advent of streaming services, there's been a lot more avenues for people to like release stuff. And even then, like the, the Tangerine's a great example of a movie that's so cinematic, but yet is just shot on the most consumer possible product Did you say that kind of what we were talking about last week uh that we sort of saw the death of like the mid-budget movie for sure at the same time that is my least favorite thing that's happened this decade but i feel like that has been happening since the aughts like i can't really name a whole bunch uh from like 2005 to 2010 it was really starting to upscale i think that a lot of 
trends, especially with uh, building of franchises and building of cinematic universes, probably expedited that. But I feel like I feel like it was happening before that. The only one I can honestly think of, actually I can think of two. One is Rise of Planet of the Apes, and then this one is like a moment of division between you and I. But I think that's part of the reason I'm pretty fond of Captive State is that it is a mid-budget little sci-fi movie. You assume that, like, the division would mean that I remember fucking Captive State that well. <laughs> By any means. I, I mean, it, it, I'll, I'll give it that, yeah, it was definitely, it wasn't a very flashy movie. It did feel like it kind of used its uh, mid-tier budget kind of well. I think that also kind of died with, um, sorry to bring him up, but I think Harvey Weinstein kind of helped kill that, because he spent a lot of his time making mid-budget, really mediocre Oscar movies. Wait, people started wait what did he do? Well, aside from what I said, nothing, clearly. Nothing at all monstrous reprehensible. Next, you're going to tell me Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey are reprehensible. Oh, okay, so we have to sit him down. We have to sit him down. <laughs> oh, not, not to make a joke, but those three people are disgusting pigs. Oh, no, they're, and, all, they're uh, all horrible pieces of shit. This was horrible. all sarcasm. Yes, yes. Last time, uh, along with doing our good and our bad feature, as we usually do, you know, for those who might be new, usually we just pick a good and a bad feature at the end of a previous episode, and then we discuss that feature here, and then continue the process where, at the end of the episode, uh, Adam and I will each have uh, either two good picks or two bad picks for whatever our next topic will be, and we've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for both of those, and uh, Casey will help us out by uh, helping us pick... Um, a good and bad feature for next week. So, uh, much like last week, where we did our best and worst list, Adam had his worst of the decade list, I had my best of the decade list. We're going to reverse that this time, where I have my worst of the decade list and Adam his best. We'll go into that after we talk about our two features, but speaking of which, our two features for tonight, initially it'll be my bad pick uh, for one of the worst movies of the decade, which was Winter's Tale, and then Adam's good pick uh, of Sorry to Bother You. Um, so that'll be, uh, interesting to discuss. So let's uh, go ahead and get the bat out of the way, though. Let's start with Winter's Tale. Is it possible to love someone so completely they simply can't die? He is neither angel nor demon. He can still be alive. I've had some kind of amnesia. I'm looking for something. Can you help me? No matter how far we tip the scales our way, nothing seems to break their capacity for hope. If you didn't let me know, no one ever will. Winter's Tale starts February 14th. So, uh, Winter's Tale came out uh, in 2014, February 14th, 2014, a very romantic film. Uh, as we clearly saw. <laughs> I know, it's, it's so lovely. Um, and it's a uh, classic fantasy star-studded uh, uh, tragic romance of sorts uh, from writer and first-time director Akiva Goldsman, uh, adapting a novel by uh, Mark Halperin, uh, which had been in production at several different points. Originally, Steven Spielberg wanted to do it right after the novel was published in the 80s, and then Martin Scorsese wanted to do it in like the early 2000s. Uh, but both of them said, you know what, we, we're going to abandon that because this is pretty unfilmable. And uh, I haven't read the book, um, but maybe they were right. Yeah, I'd say what we got is still unfilmable. It's not even a fucking film. It, it's just... A series of just random genres and themes thrown together in a pot. I almost want to read the book in that I feel like this movie needs a companion novel to explain everything going on. I want Lucasfilm to put out a visual dictionary that explains all the stuff that I couldn't keep track of. <laughs> of course. Yes, uh, of course, a lot of that might have to do with Akiva Goldsman. He's an Academy Award-winning screenwriter for mainly A Beautiful Mind, uh, but he's also written, amongst other things... Um, a Time to Kill, Batman Forever, Batman Robin, The Lost in Space movie, iRobot, Cinderella Man, uh, the first two 
Dan Brown Da Vinci Code movies with Tom Hanks. Um, oh, my uh, God. I, I haven't even done Insurgent, the second Divergent movie, uh, The Fifth Wave, another bad young adult movie, Rings, the bad reboot of The Ring that came out recently, uh, oh. Transformers The Last Night, The Dark Tower. So pure garbage. <laughs> Mostly, yes. Just a bunch yeah. of fucking garbage. Imagine wow. iRobot being your high watermark. <laughs> I, I know, even, like, I'm not even a big fan of The Beautiful Mind, especially the screenplay is, like, the worst aspect of that movie. I am fond of it, and I haven't seen it since 2007, and I know the moment I go back to it, it's gonna go downhill real quick. This was based on a book, you said, right? Yes. It feels like somebody took the book, took out a bunch of, like, words, and did their own Mad Libs for the script. Or it looks like the spark notes that, like, you would look up if you, like, had this book assigned, but you didn't want to read it. Just like, oh, yeah, all the plot points, I get it. <laughs> you read it on your computer, the old paperclip will come up and just try to explain shit to you. <laughs> Do you know why Russell Crowe's headbending somebody? <laughs> Do you know why Colin, Colin Farrell's hair looks like this? <laughs> she had for Connelly's crying again. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, right, yes, Academy Award winner Jennifer Connelly, who appears in the last 30 minutes of this super long movie. Yeah, um, but, but, you know, a- like Adam and I have both seen this movie previously, and you can kind of tell we love it, clearly. Yeah, uh, but, clearly. Casey, you hadn't seen this before, so I want to hear your fresh opinions on Winner's Tale. I went in blind. I didn't know anything about it. I walked out of the movie, or I finished the movie. I'm done. I've seen the whole thing. I still know nothing about it. <laughs> This is fucking incomprehensible. Like, it's amazing that a movie that is 99% people sitting in rooms talking to each other is so bad at expositing what the fuck is going on. Out of curiosity, Casey, what's your best plot synopsis for this movie? I want you to try and give people plot synopsis. Some people out there who have no idea about Winter's Tale. So, Colin Farrell is immortal for some reason, uh, and has been doing work with Russell Crowe, who I guess is also immortal, or maybe it's just his accent will live forever. And he falls in love with a beautiful redhead, and she has consumption for which she has been destined to die. But a little girl tells him that if he kisses her on this magic bed in this special spot, she will live forever. And uh, after a while night of partying, he accidentally fucks her to death. And he tries to bring her back from the dead by kissing her in that spot, and it doesn't work. And then he ends up on the Brooklyn Bridge, and at this point, I tuned out and started thinking about places nearby they could get donuts. That's what I do if I get bored in a movie set in New York. I just start going, okay, uh, donut plants near there. If they go far enough, they can get the dough or donut pub. But after he gets thrown off the bridge, he wakes up and has no memory for some reason. And he just kind of wanders around for, I guess, 100 years until he meets Jennifer Connelly and Jennifer Connelly's cancerous redheaded daughter, who he thinks he could save by taking her to that same spot that was once foreshadowed and kissing her. But Russell Crowe wants to stop him for some reason. And Russell Crowe fails. And then it succeeds. And I guess he dies and becomes a star. And Will Smith is there. <laughs> Which, which is the big part that, like, any like when this movie actually came out, anyone talked about it was just like, holy fuck, Will Smith is in this for, like, two scenes where he plays Satan. Because Russell Crowe was some kind of, like, demon creature of some sort, uh, who has a Popeye Irish accent for some reason. Yahtzee! <laughs> Yahtzee! 
That's the best part of this movie, far and away. Yahtzee. That's true, yes. Yahtzee as the astral plane show him his entire thing. I kind of like the scene where he's at the restaurant, tells somebody he wants like a giant eagle to be fried, and then murders them and uses their blood to paint this picture of the fucking redhead you're talking That's the thing, Russell Crowe has all the weird, interesting stuff in this movie that I remember. Like, the point when he's in the modern day, and the he's like, oh, I can sense Colin Farrell out there, and he fucking jumbles around a bunch of jewelry on his fucking dresser drawer and suddenly tells him where the fuck Colin Farrell is. All these things actually happen in the movie. But anyway, he takes his orders from Will Smith, who's Satan, in 1914, um, but he's dressed in a Jimi Hendrix shirt for some reason, and he has a bad CG demon mouth at one point. Yeah, and really forced charisma that doesn't come off neither smooth nor intimidating. He's just like, nah, I'm saving all of that for After Earth, baby. <laughs> I was going to say, welcome to Earth, Russell Crowe. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's so bad. I, I don't mind the fact that he's got like even the Jimi Hendrix shirt on and the modern suit. Because you got to figure if he is supposed to be Lucifer, then maybe he's of all time. You know, he lives in the future as well right, as the present right. as well as the past. Fine, whatever, cool. But knowing that that who is who they thought would be the most charismatic actor to play this version of Satan in a movie against Russell Crowe's just silly, hammy performance. It just, yeah, that's the only thing people can think about because it was kind of a surprise. But nobody looks at it fondly. It's just really a mess amongst an entire other mess. Well, right, and the reason I kind of chose is I remember when I first saw this just being kind of baffled in a fascinated way by a lot of the weird things that happened in this movie, and I've listed a bunch of them, and maybe those of you who have never heard of this movie are like, oh my god, Thomas, that sounds at least hilariously bad. It's also extremely dull. Like, I forgot how dull this entire movie is, because it just plays out and stretches every single one of these elements out to the point of, like, making any kind of interesting stuff just dry out. There's still some fun in terms of, like, oh, hey, here's... Um, fucking Russell Crowe's posse in the modern day, instead of coming up on horses, come up on fucking cars on, like, an ice floe that's frozen. And, like, keep in mind, this is, like, a fleet of fucking, like, really big cars that just come after Colin Farrell. But then the horse just, like, kicks one of its hooves, and that's what makes all of the fucking cars break into the ice. Just, like, weird, nonsensical things like that happen, but it's mostly just a giant boar, which I'm guessing, Casey, you would agree with. Like, there was a point I was getting concerned because I already put this on late at night and I was getting worried. like, will I be able to say I finished this for the podcast? It was taking a lot just for me to stay awake. Like I said, so much of the movie is just people talking about what's going on. And for a movie from not only a acclaimed writer, even if his stuff isn't good, he's still a, a veteran writer and he knows how to make stuff decently efficient like that's what you have to do when you do hollywood blockbusters these scenes have to be efficient there is zero efficiency in this movie it's also just like so disappointing to see even some of these people like um especially colin farrell like i had so much hope for colin farrell post like the sort of weird comeback he was kind of having with um like in bruges i was like oh my god i can't wait to see him just really rise back up and he just got wasted on a lot of stupid shit like this and conversely russell crowe also is just like completely in his fugue state where like that pretty much stopped like what when when did russell crowe become bad oh uh Body of, what is it, Body of Lies or something like that? Well, Body of Lies was the one he did with DiCaprio, I know, and that was the one I remember where he 
was like at the time like oh you know I'm getting really into character I'm getting fat for this part yeah 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 and, yeah, and no, he, he never, never really got, got out of that method yeah. acting <laughs> <laughs> he's just been from, that from guy then, forever now. from then on just like oh I'm playing Robin Hood is Robin Hood fat now he is my favorite post like Oscar Russell Crowe is the Russell Crowe fighting around the world from South Park well, of course, that's true. That's, that, that is his best role. Well, well, you know, I will say, like, he, there are a few points where he kind of sprouts like a nice guy's, obviously. Where it's just like, yeah. oh my god, oh, you're, you are really talented, and then he'll do, like, a mummy right afterward. And it's like, oh, what are you doing? Or Les Mis. You know, like, no, don't sing. Don't sing. <laughs> I know you have a rock band, honey, but don't sing. Yeah, please don't. Well, but then you see him in, like, and I know a lot of people hate the movie, and Thomas, I, I believe you're one of them, but I thought him as Jor-El in Man of Steel was, he, I thought he was really good. No, like, I have no issue with him in that movie. No, it's a lot of the other stuff around him. Yeah, that makes sense. Russell Crowe can still turn in a really good character-driven sort of performance if he tries. But then he can also be Russell Crowe in A Winter's Tale where he's trying way too hard. And it's just ridiculous. But no, uh, I guess we should go back to Winter's Tale even though, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to just because we mentioned all this, like like I said, really weird stuff that happens in this movie, but none of it really sticks. Like, honestly, despite how much we're talking about Russell Crowe, he's at least the most consistently weird thing about the movie. Where, like, I, I even kind of mentioned, like, his headbutting thing against Colin Farrell is, like, my favorite part of the whole movie. Because he's like, hmm, how do I defeat this, like, a beautiful, handsome man? I'll headbutt his face to death? And then throw him off the fucking bridge. As opposed to just, like, all the boring non-chemistry with, like, Colin Farrell and uh, Jessica Brown Flannery, I believe is her name, the female lead. The um, one I texted you and said, Kira Knightley. Oh, and who did you think um, Mr. William Hurt was initially? I, I thought it was Bill Nighy. <laughs> right, I, I'm just like, Casey, did you watch a different movie? Yeah, you meant to be like, Bill Nighy isn't in this movie. I was like... I'm pretty certain Bill Nye's in this movie. Uh, <laughs> Nobody has any chemistry with each other in this movie. No. Like, even uh, Colin Farrell in the main love interest, I don't buy a second of it. I don't think anybody in this understands what movie they're in at any given point. Like, Colin Farrell's, you know, got this beautiful hair, and he's getting a headbutt off a bridge, and all of a sudden he's on a goddamn Pegasus in modern-day New York. Like, what the fuck is happening here? It's like it's five different genres mashed together at once by clearly a first time director and just really a, not a good screenwriter <laughs> yet. You know, he won an Oscar. So, oh, God, direct this unfilmable thing. You take a crack at it. Well, he apparently treated this as like a big passion project for him. Like he really took this under his wing, just loved the book and wanted to adapt it to the screen. And it almost feels like a movie made by somebody who maybe like gets the idea of the book but can't translate why it works. You might be a fan of it, but I don't fucking get what's so special about this book that just doesn't make any fucking sense. It feels like it's a movie that's almost like expounded upon by like a five year old who's trying to tell you it's like, and then this happened, and then the lady ended up with uh, Colin Farrell, and they had sex, and then she died of consumption, and then this happened. And he's an angel, I think. <laughs> I think he's an angel and become a star. <laughs> this one feels like it wants to be like, oh, let's get to the cool parts and just kind of half ass the connecting material. That's what it kind of feels like. And all the cool parts are just weird shit that happens, doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. <laughs> when you hear the idea of like, oh man, Colin Farrell has a Pegasus, you would think that would sound so interesting. And then you watch the movie, and it's mostly this horse that he calls horse and has long scenes of back and forth dialogue with. Like, horse, I don't know, should I break into this house? Okay, horse, I'll do it. 
Yeah, I guess I agree. You know, you you see the trailer and Colin Farrell's on the Pegasus, and I was like, finally, my actual dreams that I have nightly have come true. But then it's like it just falls apart, man. I still have those dreams, though. One day it'll be true. But it's weird now. That was like bullseye, Colin Farrell. It pissed me the fuck off that they never named the horse. Because, like, this, it's just going to be awkward if you just keep calling him horse. Name him fucking Horace if you have to. Casey, what was your favorite bizarre turn that happened in this movie? Of, like, all the weird things that happened. <laughs> At least the one I'm selling it people on is when he accidentally fucked his girlfriend to death. <laughs> Which, by the way, she dies immediately. Like, they just, like, sit down comfortably, like, oh, that was so great. <laughs> she just dies <laughs> immediately. Followed by him, once again, like you're saying, kind of, like, taking her to this magic bed to try and bring back to life and doesn't which makes it so much creepier when he ends up doing that later to the little like cancer yes. girl it's oh my so God, I was, fucking creepy <laughs> i was so afraid he was gonna kiss her on the lips i was thinking i this movie probably won't but i can't guarantee it won't <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing it's like you're sitting down with this movie and you're like nothing it's one of those things where like usually in the movie you would love the idea of like oh i have no idea what to expect any turn that this could make would be like really fascinating i'm on the edge of my seat but this is one where it's like you're not on the edge of your seat you're, you're unpredictable in a scary way <laughs> every single story point kind of turns to that but luckily it's just mostly stupid shit like say uh russell crowe getting stabbed through the chin and then becoming a snowman russell crowe mr farrell you could have saved them i gave you all the clues Another movie that might show up later when we get to our lists. Put a pin in that. Um, it's very clear we're kind of t- not really have much to say about uh, Winter's Tale anymore. So, anyway, Casey, your final thoughts on Winter's Tale? I can't believe I'm about to say this sentence. I wish this was more like Collateral Beauty. Because that movie, as much of a train wreck as it is, always interests me. It always finds new ways to excite me with how it's going off the rails with its magical reels and bullshit. This didn't excite me. This was a slog. This was a chore. It felt like it felt like having to watch a really, really bad educational video that just would not end. There, like, example, during the sex scene, I just wanted the movie to move on. I was banking on the movie deciding that he prematurely ejaculates just so you could get to the next scene. There's some stuff I like. I think that Russell Crowe is giving it his all. I think that some of the cinematography is good. I think that some of the production design is good. But... Overall, it's just really fucking boring to look at. It's really fucking boring in every sense except to describe. Because I tried to tell three people about the movie in the last 24 hours. All three of them, when I describe it, it sounds like a much more interesting movie than you're getting into. And then I have to go like, oh, oh, it's also incredibly boring. One tiny gripe that I have that pissed me off completely. Even Marie Saint, which, by the way, even Marie Saint's in this movie. Yep. Is able to look up at the sky in Manhattan and see stars. You can't do that. It's a giant ray of light shooting up at the sky. On a good night, you can see Venus. You cannot see stars on that island. No. Also, the fact that she sees this guy who she recognized as a child, and he's exactly the same from, like, 1916, and she doesn't have, like, immediately a heart attack and dies. Like, and even, like, very strong-willed people would, like, at least, like, completely have their minds blown, but she's just like, oh, it's you, let's have a hug. <laughs> it's like, this frail old woman would just immediately collapse and die at seeing this. Oh, and if stars are just dead lovers reuniting or whatever bullshit I was trying to say, what's the space program like in this universe? <laughs> the stars are just couples fucking. That's what really space is. I was going to say, yeah, that's <laughs> just a bunch of voyeurs. <laughs> 
<laughs> Houston, we have no problem with this situation. Right. Houston, we have lift off. <laughs> um. <laughs> While you have the floor, your final thoughts, Adam. I didn't even care if Colin Farrell prematurely ejaculated. I just wanted this over. For uh, The first time I saw it, I hated it. Uh, and, the, you know, this time, uh, full disclosure, I couldn't even find a good copy of it. So I watched, like, Supercuts and listened to po- other podcasts and watched, uh, read other reviews just to kind of get a memory refresher. And even with all of that, with hours of, like, trying to study – I still don't know what the fuck this thing is trying to do, what this movie is trying to say. It, it's just, it's a garbage fire that, you know, like uh, like Casey said, if you describe it to somebody or when you see the trailer or something, it looks like it's got promise or it could be pretty good. And, and I mean, it just doesn't deliver on anything. And the horrible CG mouth and the horrible CGI Russell Crowe phrase when, when he freaks out, it's just, it's really stupid, man. It. It's trying to be so many different things and also have a message, but also be whimsical, but also be a comedy, but also be romantic, also be a fantasy, also. And it, it, it just doesn't land on anything. It's just a garbage fire of a movie. Uh, well, yes, I mean, I completely agree with all that. And I think also the big thing is, like, what I remembered of this movie was almost being, like, so bad it's kind of good and fascinating. Um, it's not that either. That's, that's the big thing is, like, as Casey mentioned, it's so boring. It's so much better to, like, have it described to you really than watching this entire movie just really go for boring stretch on boring stretch and occasionally something just like weird will happen you'll be confused like from the start there's the our main love interest uh, she's just like oh i my my uh, consumption gives me a sixth sense of some sort <laughs> that she tells me i might fall in love with somebody then there's a boring stretch and then they have the meet cute where colin farrell and her meet up as he's trying to rob her house and then boring stretch. That's the thing. Like there are occasional peaks of just like what the fuck's happening, uh, but it's mostly just a very boring slog. Uh, but I think that still makes it appropriate for a worst of the decade list in general. Would you guys maybe agree with that at least that it fits the monicum of worst of the decade? Oh, yep, definitely. Yes, which is why it'll be on my list later. But we'll get to those lists in a second. We have no other feature to talk about. But first, uh, let's have a little ad for an ESO show that you can listen to right after our show. This is a Nerdland flashback featuring comic book artist Lawson Chambers. Whenever people reboot things, there's this instinct to make it darker and grittier. Yeah. And they're like, you don't need to see a darker, grittier Sonic <laughs> the Hedgehog. That is wild to me. That like, in the, our modern age, that our trailer for a movie could come out and fans could go, no, we hate the way that little blue man looks. Change it. <laughs> New podcast episodes will be available soon. All right, let's get into our second feature from 2018. Sorry to bother you. I just really need a job. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, sorry to bother you. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. Be clear. It is morally emaciated. Cash, you are awesome. Time for the homies. So, um, full disclosure, uh, last week we talked about uh, a movie from 2019 and another movie that was maybe a bit less seen by a lot of people. Um, we didn't put up a spoiler warning. Um, we definitely would want to put up a spoiler warning for Sorry to Bother You, if you've never like seen this movie or even heard of it. Um, full disclosure, we're going to talk about the movie in detail, but uh, this is a movie that benefits from not knowing anything 
and especially not knowing what happens in, like, the last fourth of it, which is, um, maybe the most daring and insane cinema I've ever seen. <laughs> Would we all maybe agree with that? Yeah, it's off the fucking rails, dude. The last quarter of this movie, I almost don't even want to talk about it. I mean, we have to talk about it. But I'm just worried that people who haven't seen it might be like, ah, where can it be? And listen to it, and then you're going to just miss out on the surprise. Because this is one, like, you can't know that's coming. It makes the movie. It makes the movie. Honestly. Yes, yes, yes. Just pause this episode and watch it. It's on Hulu right now. Sorry to bother you. You can definitely uh, just take a look at that. And then come back and listen to us talk about this movie more in depth, which we're going to do right now. So, sorry to bother you. Um, as I mentioned, it came out in 2018. It was directed and written by Boots Riley, who some of you might know as uh, the lead sort of person of The Coop, which is uh, a great um, you know, rap ensemble um, from mainly sort of like the mid-90s. Uh, they still continue to work to this day. And they even made an album called Sorry to Bother You, uh, which uh, was actually based on the screenplay that Boots Riley had had in his pocket for like about eight or so years before this movie finally got made. Um, and the way I would probably describe this best is, like, imagine a late 90s, early 2000s music video from MTV that really warped your mind, uh, but it's feature-length. That's, that's really what I love about this movie, is it feels like a feature-length, crazy-ass music video that never stops that energy, despite being about an hour, 50 minutes long. Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. <laughs> I think that's completely fair. And you hadn't seen it's... this before, Adam, even though, despite it being your pick. Oh. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it before, but... I know uh, you talked about how good it was at, at different lengths without ever spoiling it. Friend of the show, Shaquille Lambert, talked about it and praised it quite a bit. So I was like, all right, I got to give it a try. And uh, wow, am I glad I did. It is, uh, it's full of great performances, really good visual stuff, a lot of good commentary. It's funnier than hell. And uh, <laughs> fucking ending, man. Army Hammer in this, by the way. Because I usually, eh, Army Hammer's kind of vanilla. Like, eh, I'm good on Army Hammer. He's so good in this. Fucking, I love him in this. And, uh, like, Keith Stainfield's always good. Yeah, I think the Army Hammer thing, I, it's so weird that, like, he would follow up something like uh, Call Me By Your Name, a very beautiful, tender, subtle movie that's just like, oh my god, he's just, like, such a warm, inviting dreamboat of a man. And then just basically play a coked-out, crazy rich person in this movie. It's such a contrast. It shows just how versatile he really is as an actor, for sure. Uh, but, Casey, you were a big fan of this know when it came out, and uh, does that still stand to this day? It's died down a little for me, just in that it's... Uh, so, uh, the more I've watched it, the more the this is a first-time movie comes to mind, which, that's another thing that I liked about this uh, pairing of movies, that they're both first-time directors doing what can movies are almost a kitchen sink of all the ideas they had about something they're passionate about. And obviously this one is way fucking more successful. I know it might be cliche to say there's only one of this, but there is only one movie ever made like Sorry to Bother You. And it is Sorry to Bother You. It's fascinating. It's political commentary. It's funny. It's amazing what they did with so little. Like the movie had so few computer effects that on the computer screens on the background in the office are just printed out and taped with a light behind them. Yeah, but what's so fascinating is, like, it, you really get a sense that that's very much a stylistic choice. It definitely feels like there's sort of, like, a weird blend of, like, influences like a Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry, but even also, like, a Spike Lee or even a John Singleton just, like, all meshed up into this 
bizarre, weird movie that, as you mentioned, like despite having all those influences, is unlike any specific thing you could ever really point to in terms of film. And I, I still just remember watching this movie, and people in my audience, which was a pretty solidly packed crowd, were pretty much into it until what happens in the fourth part of this movie happens, and then most of them left, which is another great thing. Like, this is definitely one that would, like, not appease mostly, like, a, a normal crowd, and I kind of love the movie for that. It, it feels so distinctly of its own. I think it's a big credit to Anna Perina, uh, who is a weird sort of, like, sister to A24 in this decade, where A24 kept just making movies that, despite how small and not very mainstream they were, they end up just keep making money despite that. Anna Perrin is like sort of like the tragic sister to that in terms of making great, weird movies, but most of them end up flopping, I think mainly because Anna Perrin has no idea how to make itself a distinctive brand. Um, and they also made Her, which did fine, and even this did pretty well, where it's like a $3.2 million budget, but made $18 million. But still, at the same time, they have had more high-profile flops, and this is the company that uh, Megan Ellison uh, basically took all her uh, riches and turned it into a production company, and they just released something as recently as Booksmart that not enough people saw in the theater. But why do you think maybe this one at least got a bit more attention, Casey? Why do you think this one sort of stuck out amongst uh, their various different films? If I had to guess, probably a little bit more towards trends of the fact that Lakeith Stanfield was kind of having a moment coming off of a really good performance in Get Out, and Black Cinema in general had really been taking off. It kind of helped that it had a... Like the same way you're calling Annapurna sister uh, studio to A24, this kind of had a sister sibling to blind spotting two black movies out of Oakland in the span of like a month. Which were shot literally in Oakland at the same time, actually, interestingly enough. Yeah. And that by pure coincidence, they're like two of my three favorite movies of 2018. Probably it got a little bit lucky that it struck a nerve in the right moment with the right people, with the right people behind it. That's the other thing about this is that Boots Riley was able to call in like all his celebrity favors. Like, hey, Patton Oswalt, can you come in for an afternoon and do voice recording for me? Or, hey, Terry Crews, I need you to hold this Jesus insulin pump. <laughs> yes. Every time I watch this movie, there's a new joke that I forget about until I watch again. For me, this time, it was the Jesus insulin pump. Oh, and, and there's plenty of, like, other great people that are all abound. Like, even David Cross is the other white voice, which that was really what sold me when the original trailers came out. It's just these black people who have to go on and, like, do customer service, or in this case telemarketing, um, have to put on a distinctively white voice to get people comfortable. That's such an amazing idea. And I guess it's also full disclosure that uh, none of us here are black. Um, I know you might think, like, especially Casey looks like Terry Crews in real life, but no, he does not. Oh. Shocker. Um, it's just weird genetics. I don't get it, man. <laughs> no, yeah, but, uh, I mean, even then, it does still speak to at least, like, even on a class level, a lot more of just, like, th that's what the main satire really is. It's just yeah. more of, like, a downtrodden, sort of, like, lower-level people completely getting screwed over. One might rise up, but it's like, oh, you have to completely sell out any of your, like, dignity or morals whatsoever to do so. Uh, which I think is just, like, a great relatable story in general, but of course there's so many different layers of commentary and everything like that. Uh, but where did this movie really hook you, Adam, for your first time? Where did it really like sink its teeth into you? Now, that's a good question. Because uh, I was kind of going through the paces in the very you know first 20 minutes, half hour. I really liked seeing Steven Yoon from Walking Dead pop up because I, I do like him a lot uh, as an actor. I think he's kind of underutilized in most things, or just not used enough. But probably Danny Glover uh, with the whole white voice thing. That got me. And then 
But I loved his fucking boss. Who who looks like the fucking ex crackhead with the face tattoos and everything? Yes, yes. God, I fucking love that guy. That guy kills me. He's like that fucking coworker or boss we've all had, who's like just way too excited about his job. Like either a it's phony and forced because it's all he has in the world, or b he's just instantly a company man. And I think that guy he came across like maybe a little bit of both. Uh, but I fucking loved that guy. He was he was killing me. He was making me laugh so hard. Yeah, Michael X. Summers is the actor's name. Yeah, so funny. Um, but but yeah, I think what really hooked me was the moment Lakeith had his first phone call, and they visualized that by having his desk pop up in whatever that different was environment. Really, that was really fucking cool. I was not expecting that. No, yeah, that's such a great, it's like an example of like sort of a Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones style visual um, that really puts you in the spot of, especially um, as someone who has worked a lot in customer service, especially like over the phone, um, I've had sort of awkward conversations like this or just phone calls that completely went blank. But at the same time, what I also love is that like there's this main sort of drive going out with like, Keith Stanfield, his sort of story, but there's so much great background, like just subplots going on that you can like really pick up like Casey was kind of talking about as you rewatch the movie particularly my favorite one being as he rises up there's a point when he gets hit by a coke can uh, by somebody and you see in the background that, sh- that person becomes like a weird internet celebrity and then has a commercial and then people keep wearing these wigs that resemble Lucky Stanfield's hair and there's a <laughs> shot of a bunch of white kids wearing that fro <laughs> as Halloween costumes <laughs> it's just like, it's like that in of itself could be like an entire film but it's just like a great running joke in the background of this movie. That's what works so well. Is it's just so dense that it really honors rewatches just to see like all the weird shit that keeps happening. Like we mentioned, this was written in 2012, and I have a feeling that because he had an extra like six years to go back and rewrite or rewrite it, uh, he could adjust things here or there. I believe at one point he said that there was a line in the script uh, that he wrote originally that said. We have to make America great again, and he decided that maybe, maybe that one's a little too on the nose. He has to cut it. This actually goes into one of my two gripes with this movie, where thing the one bit of satire I think does not work is when you write this in 2012. What's on TV a lot? A lot of really, really shitty reality TV. That's right where we bottomed out, and the uh, go-to show I got the shit kicked out of me. That feels like a artifact of something written for uh, in 2012, satirizing what was on TV then, but has fallen out of favor now. Well, if anything, it just feels more like it's too polished. It's like more of a satire of game shows, weirdly, from like the 70s, as opposed to um, like now that would just be like an internet show without any production value whatsoever of just like people randomly kicking each other in the balls. Also, in the world and time this movie exists, I mean anything. It's it's fair play for anything. It doesn't. I mean. There could have been a that's my beaver, you know, leave it to beaver type show on the television. And in this world, to me, it would have made sense. Uh, but I do get what you're saying. But once you get to the the last quarter of this movie, I, it, for me, at least, it's hard to look back on anything in the in the first bit of the movie and sort of um, judging on its realism. Because this movie just spins so far off the fucking grid. That's like, well, everything I saw before, you're like, yeah, all right, I get it. I would say my only issue with, and this is more upon watching a second time, especially hearing some criticism that I do kind of agree with about the movie, um, I really like Tessa Thompson. I think she's very good in this part. 
I just don't know what Boots Boots Riley is really getting at with her character, who's just sort of like this performance artist who says a bunch of different, like, very vague platitudes mm-hmm. about just sort of like satirizing, like, especially sort of like feminist black art in particular. And it just doesn't feel like he quite has a direction to go with. And I'm not sure, like, are you making fun of this? She adopts a white voice of Lily James, but right. it's like, so is she like faking all of this? Or is she too sincere? I'm not sure what they're going for with that character. I, I definitely, definitely agree. Because uh, I thought the same thing. I'm like, when he goes into the art gallery and she's got the Lily James voice, I'm like, oh, she's full of shit. But then it's like, she instantly's like, I can't roll with you anymore. And you're like, wait, so she's not full of shit? Uh, she's got Bob Dylan lyric earrings? Like, what the fuck is going on? I agree. I don't think her character was handled as well as it could have been. I think the core of a cool character was there, and I do think she really gave it her all on and turned in a really, really good performance. But I, I do I do agree that her mo- character motivation maybe was a little bit kind of all over the place. Theoretic, and I agree that's definitely of the characters probably handled the weakest. But I do really dig the idea of like showing an artist who is actually able to have some uh, success, but she has to have some success as long as she is appeasing the uh, people with money who are able to pay her. And so even some of her avant-garde stuff is sort of appeasement. She's a lot more of a renegade and a rebel outside of that with her uh, street art. But wouldn't that then make her a hypocrite of a character? Right, which w- would be interesting if, like, they handle that at some point. If, like, he right. would almost throw that back at her as someone's like, well, you do, like, this thing and say another. I agree. I think, like, there's there's a kernel of, like, some kind of interesting, like, contrast where, like, that's why they kind of have a connection. There is maybe they're more alike than they might think they aren't. Um, but I don't think they just, like, give her enough of, like, a definitive character to really say all that. And it feels like we're more focused on, like, Keith Stanfield for obvious reasons, for, like, plot reasons and other things. Um, I would almost wish they also kind of did a bit more, like, they almost hint at a relationship between her and Steve Yoon after her and Lakeith briefly break up, and I would almost wish they kind of maybe even went more in that direction as well, Um, because to be fair, I mean, there's that point where Steve Yoon's twirling that sign, I'm like, damn girl, get it. Like, look at him. (laughs) I totally got the the, uh, vibe that they did hook up. She told him that she hooked up with somebody. And, I mean, it was right after they kissed, so I'm assuming it was him. But I agree, there, there could have been a lot more character dynamic between the three of them at that point. Another arc there, but then at the same time, I don't know that sort of a love triangle or a rivalry or something like that. The, the movie couldn't quite sustain that. Like, the movie has so yeah, much Yeah, I don't think it would have yeah, been yeah. necessary. I think yeah, what I, we I got was... Well, I think, that, I think that was enough, but, you know, whatever. I'm not talking. Fucking Mariani. So <laughs> that, that, that's you know, true. Yes. <laughs> we're gonna blog. It's on www.angelfire.com. <laughs> Four years running. Anyway, um, but happy anniversary. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, there's there's so much other like great stuff to talk about. You mentioned Danny Glover. I totally agree. The bit in particular, like what saves even like that whole "I got the shit kicked out of me" bit for me is him saying like "I love it so much, I got the motherfucking t-shirt," and he just thumbs <laughs> off his fucking shirt. <laughs> I'm loving the Danny Glover Renaissance, and I feel like this kind of started it. That's been happening the last couple years because now he's been in like a bunch more things. He was just in like uh, Jumanji two, obviously, or Last Black Man in San Francisco. He was really great in. Um, just uh, I, I think he's like having a bit more of a moment. 
weirdly late in his career, and I'm glad to see that. I do love also um, his best friend, Jermaine Fowler. Um, the scene where like him and Lakeith Stanfield have the compliment off is just one of the funniest fucking scenes of the decade to me. It's just like, oh, hey, you smell great. What's that? Is that cologne? It smells wonderful. Oh, no, it's just deodorant. Wow, it must be great. You're so awesome. Let's have drinks. Have a bunch of drinks. Let's do it. Like, they like, just keep going back and forth. I die laughing every time I see that bit. That's so fucking hysterical to me. What's one of the funnier scenes for you in the movie, Casey? Uh, I'm never going to forget watching it in the theater. It was not exactly a packed house, and there was a little old lady a couple rows ahead of me who walked out the moment they started talking about the idea of a white voice. And I fucking lost it the first time I heard David Cross. I did not watch the trailer going into this movie. I knew nothing about it. And oh my god, that moment fucking killed me. Yeah, particularly the bit where like, Lakeith Stanfield's like celebrating and he's got the, the wine glass. He's just like, some for my homies and some for me! In the David Cross voice is amazing. It's like the, so it's such a fucking hysterical line. But uh, what's, what's another really funny moment for you, Adam? I like that Mr. Beep, whatever the hell his name is. I love his fucking eye patch and sideburns, but and his little derby. But I love that he's Pat Oswalt's voice. So whatever it's him and uh, Lakeith uh, Stanfield together, you just got these two giant nerds just bouncing back and forth with the whitest fucking voices ever. Like even whiter than our voices, which is saying a lot. But I loved anything Ivory Hammer did on screen. I was all for. He, he fucking killed me in this movie. My favorite Army Hammer line in this movie is after the big reveal and he's shown the video, how he just goes, but what I'm describing here, it's not rational. Like, anytime I hear that line, I fucking lose it. Because he does not want people to think he's nuts. He doesn't care if people think he's a douche. He's just going, no, this makes sense economically. We should do this. Yeah, another great Army Hammer sort of bit is him saying, like, oh, Lakeith, you can rap, right? Go up there and rap. And the rap that he does, which I will not go near repeating whatsoever, um, but that entire sequence... No. no, not at all, is one of, like, the f- most satirically on-point great things I've ever seen about basically just white people, like, taking on and embracing black culture in the most bottom-of-the-barrel way possible. I just love the way that that scene plays out and how satirically genius it honestly is, <laughs> despite how obviously very blunt it is. No, this time watching it, I was wondering, is that how Boots Riley sees the Coop's hip-hop hip career? I bet that's how he sees modern-day hip-hop as a whole, to be honest with you. A lot of um, a lot of old-school guys and things like that, that's how they kind of see it. Uh, not necessarily appropriation, but maybe a little bit of cultural appropriation. Uh, definitely, you know, gentrification of the hip-hop genre. Don't get me wrong, I'm about as white as I can be, but, but I grew up loving hip-hop and still do. But that's the, there's no excuse why certain guys who are big today are big, other than be like, look, I'm listening to the new hip-hop guy. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and that scene, Thomas, you're 100% right. I've been in rooms or get-togethers or weddings or parties where that basically that exact same thing happens. And it's disgusting and disturbing and it makes me want to leave yes uh but speaking of something that made a lot of people want to leave in many of the theaters that were showing this movie we gotta get to it the the twist that happens in this movie where someone goes through not the jade door but the olive door there's a very clear difference which is another great <laughs> small bit in this movie i love um and uh who does uh lakeith Stanfield find in a bathroom but a horseman this fucking mutant horseman 
and it's a whole plot to like basically make labor so much more cost effective and cheap by basically genetically modifying people to be literal labor horses. I am very glad that you guys inadvertently chose a double feature of magical realism movies with horses who fuck. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we, did, we did see that. Yeah, I mean, I still remember watching this. Throughout all this, like, I'm still consistently entertained. And I'm just like, oh, man, this movie just goes so wild. I can't believe this is already, like, one of my favorites of that year and maybe potentially of a decade as things would go along. And then that happens. And I'm just, like, just fucking innovating all the time. I can't believe this is fucking happening. It's shot like a horror scene. And it's genuinely terrifying. And I found out that horse is voiced by Forrest Whitaker, <laughs> who's a producer on this movie. <laughs> I learned that last night. Yeah, uh, which I do love when he pops up later. He's just like, um, oh, thank you for helping us. Man, I'm from Oakland, too. <laughs> we talk normal <laughs> just because I'm a fucking horseman, <laughs> which is so great. Uh, but but Adam, how like you did not know any of this, right, going in. we I was very clear not to spoil you on this whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just knew that the movie went off the rails. That's about all I knew. Uh, how? I had no idea. Honestly, from the uh, previews or even the poster with Bandage Lakeith Stanfield, I expected maybe like an apocalyptic scenario or something like that. I had no idea. Or maybe just like his day just keeps getting worse, which it sort of does. But no, I never expected equestrian people. Uh, I, not, not once did I expect there to be giant horsemen with huge flopping dongers, nonetheless. <laughs> and the fact that he fucking that he freed them and then they come to his aid at the end and just beat up all the mercenaries and shit because they're super strong too. I mean, I lost my shit, man. I, I couldn't fucking believe it. And like, and then like you said, Army Hammer sitting there just trying to explain it to him. Like, no, you're not getting it. Look, wait a minute, man. Wait a minute. No, if you would have watched the video, you would have understood. It, it's just. It's fucking wild. I never, ever would have thought this movie would go that turn. And then the very last shot of the movie, you're like, oh, of course. Let's just make it even crazier. Like, why not? Sure, he got a delayed sort of powder. It, it's, it's fucking wild, man. I, I, can't, I can't celebrate the last quarter of this movie enough. Well, especially, like, my favorite thing about it is, like, this ends up getting videotaped, and they he goes on a bunch of talk shows and reveals it to everybody. And the genius of this movie is that that happens, and then their stock goes up, and Army Hammer's even richer, and it's just like that. <laughs> that's the immediate turn that happens here. It's just like, oh, wait, no, even if this doesn't happen, you're going to end up getting fucked over anyway. <laughs> Exposing this doesn't matter. Especially, that's what makes this feel like it goes from necessarily being like, oh, a dated 2012 sort of storyline to much more modern, where it's like, look at all this corruption! Isn't it great? <laughs> that goes to my second big gripe, and don't go around, I adore that. Uh, when that scene happened, I believe I nearly had trouble breathing because of how hard I was laughing the first time. Though, the movie becomes so huge that after that, going back to trying to settle a union dispute... Well, I, I think what works about that to me is more just a case of, like, it, it shows off the fact that, like, there's that great scene where, like, after all that happens, like, he Stanfield talks with Steve Yoon and Jeremy Fowler about, like, man, I just thought this would actually, like, do something here. It's like, well, you can't really make a huge change that would get, like, a lot of these corrupt people out of power. It seems almost impossible for the average man, but the important thing is to kind of, like, fight for what you can maybe control by any extent. And I think that's the thing is like the movie ends up where it's just like, it's a small victory of like, well, we got like our union to like end up actually doing something. So we have a small victory, but the important thing is to even keep fighting. I think the key stands says something like, we got to start fighting somewhere to some degree. It's like, you got to work within the weird capitalist fucked up system. Like you can't 
like to quote Rocco's Mind Life, you can't fight City Hall necessarily, uh, but you can at least make a small change that matters for like people directly in your community, which I think is like a much more interesting and like honestly like reliable message to have than like oh you can change the world not quite, but you can at least make a small change that matters. I really like that for as absurdist and sometimes cartoonish as this movie is. There's one thing it plays completely straight, and it's. The formation, the union, it's just Lakeith Stanfield going to a busted vending machine and Steve Young just talks to him. At first, it's a whisper. He thinks maybe this guy is legit. Maybe I could get him on board. I don't know for certain. I need to talk in code. I need to make sure he's for real. And come on, and that's all right. All right, I think you're on board. Come on, let's get drinks. I'm, uh, I'm buying. He's slowly trying to indoctrinate people into this. It shows a very realistic way of here's how you can form a union. No, it it doesn't bother me that it ends sort of on a whimper either. I mean, because well, obviously it does at the very last second of the movie. It fucking bat goes right back to batshit crazy. But I think you'd almost have to tone it down for the last ten minutes real quick to make that last scene, even if, if, even if I'm basing it just on the last frame of the movie to make it have any sort of impact, you'd have to quiet the movie down first. And, and, and I do agree with what you said, Thomas, too. It just shows that change isn't necessarily going to happen right off the bat in a big way. Sometimes it takes little victories first. And uh, I, I really didn't have a problem with it. Uh, again, though, this is my first time watching it, so maybe on repeated viewings I, I'd find it sort of a little lingering, but uh, as of right now, no, I, I, I can kind of understand why it's there. And I want to ask, and did you also watch past when like the title card comes up at the end for the little bit of a scene after that? Uh, no. Okay. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't even know there was like a little stinger. What is well, it? You gotta well, tell me that, now. It, I mean, it's not really, a, it's not technically a stinger because it just comes with like, sorry to bother you, directed by, written by Boots Riley. Mm-hmm. And then the scene happens where it's at Army Hammer's place and he's like, kind of relaxed and just like, oh, well, man, another crazy bender. I wonder what's going to happen next. And then he gets a ring at his doorbell and it's Lakeith as a horseman with a bunch of other horsemen, just like, hey, sorry to bother you, man, uh, but we're going to come and beat the fuck out of you and then they storm into his house. Really? And that's, the of, that's the ending bit of the movie. Oh, I got to see that now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the thing. This movie just pops up with all sorts of different surprises. So we could go into more, but we should, uh, I guess, wrap it up here. So uh, Casey, our guest, your final thoughts on Sorry to Bother You. Despite the things I brought up, this is one of my favorite movies of the decade. It swings for defenses. It hits a lot of home runs. It puts everything it wants in there. Everything about it, the production design, the production design should have won an Oscar. And I think we need to give it the 2018 Oscar and then maybe as an interest payment, the 2019 Oscar as well. I love the cast. I love the music. Not only is this one of my favorite movies of the decade, it, the album is one of my favorite albums of the decade. I gush about this movie. This is one of my favorite movies to show people. A lot of people have ended up not liking it, but it has also gone under a lot of their skins in a way that there's only one movie like this. Uh, you do not forget. Sorry to bother you. All right, then Adam, your final thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I chose this. I'm really glad uh, I watched it for the show and just for myself. I, I, it wouldn't, I, I still don't know that this would be on my personal top 10 of the decade. Now it would be on my top 10 easily of 2018. It, it's a really, really good movie. It's batshit crazy at the end, and it has a sort of a undercurrent of, you know, just... There's going to be chaos at any second brewing throughout the whole movie. 
uh, and you're just sort of taken for, or you're following just sort of a, a bystander through it. And at one point, a, you know, someone who causes it, it's, it's really fucking funny. It's smart as a whip. It's very, very competently directed and acted. Uh, you're right. This, the soundtrack for this is fucking badass. And uh, this is one that I'm excited to show people. Yeah, and I loved it as well. I would agree with that. And it's not; it didn't quite make my list. Obviously, last episode above the of the decade, um, mostly because there's just so many movies that I agonize over putting in there. Um, but it definitely is like in a like a longer sort of like top twenty or so. It would definitely show up there. I think it's um, a phenomenal example of just like unbridled creative just like juices flowing in a way that has some like hairy moments, like especially like I said with Tessa Thompson character, but. I think it has, like, so many great ideas and so much gumption, especially just so much creative chutzpah, as it were. Notice I'm using very white terms to talk about this movie. <laughs> it's the bee's knees, it's the cat's meow. It's a real choo-choo Charlie. <laughs> it's a really doing the Charleston right there on the dance floor. Um, but, but no, I think it's, it's a tremendous movie. I'm, it's a weird thing where, like, I would almost want Boots Riley either to have an extremely long directorial career after this or almost have no other movie after this, because it feels like this is such a weird, interesting... Im- like perfect object of a movie that it's like it's almost as if he really went into this like hey i might never get to make another movie again so i'm gonna just put everything out there i almost wonder if like maybe him doing another movie he might not be as like creatively spry and like just all over the place and i think it's it's one of those rare cases where it's like a first movie has just like all this magic up front that you might not be able to recreate um that you know it's it's definitely just something to be preserved it's something to definitely like be studied for like ages to come after this and everybody in the movie's great and all this other stuff the the soundtrack like you mentioned is phenomenal um yeah it's it's a great unique movie that i think really also just works maybe not as like one of the best of the decade but definitely one of the movies that sort of defines the decade mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons uh but that's the end of our discussion of our two movies and now uh we have our list to go through uh, but yeah, just like last week, for those of you who might have uh, not been uh, listening last week, uh, we're going to go through most of our list in a sort of general order. I'm going to stick with my chronological thing that I did before, um, but all the other guys here are going to order of like nine movies in various different order, but at the very end we'll talk about either our absolute best or, in my case, worst movie of the entire decade. Um, so I'll start with my list first, just to get all that pesky negativity out of the way here. So I'll start with uh, 2010, um, a movie that Adam talked about last time, The Last Airbender, uh, which was M. Night Shyamalan's, I think, lowest point after a lot of really bad movies. That was sort of like the lowest point he probably got to in his career. Um, It's one of the biggest, big budget, massive snafus of a bad adaptation. But what's interesting is despite being like age appropriate for the animated series from Nickelodeon when it was coming out, I never watched The Last Airbender show until after I saw this movie because this movie at least had the power to be so terrible that I was like, I've heard so many people like this series, and I have to watch it just to, like, at least see what they fucked up. And, uh, I realized, yeah, they really fucked it up. <laughs> like, every possible level whatsoever. So, if nothing else, it's it's the one movie on this list that got me to watch something much more entertaining and much more enriching and much better <laughs> with the source material. Um, next, from 2012, we have a movie we've actually covered on the show here before, so I'm not going to talk about a huge amount. Um, but it is Dario Argento's Dracula. Uh, which I ended up picking for our Rutger Hauer episode that we did several months ago. Um, and I said then, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And uh, I continue to say that. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Listen to that episode to talk about how boring and awful and lame that movie is. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, but 2012 um, had another one that I thought was just, like, so bad, but in a way that's at least, like, it's much like, uh, sorry to bother you, I can say I've never seen another movie like this, uh, 2012's Branded, which, if you don't know the basic story, if I can say, um, is this is in a world where an advertising company is so evil and corrupt that they've managed to make advertisements come to life, and our hero has to stop these advertisements from coming to life by sacrificing a cow, and Max von Sydow is the lead villain of the movie, who's just in a hoodie for most of it, and then he disappears like Obi-Wan at the end of it, <laughs> and his fucking hoodie disappears. It sounds like I'm making up this movie. It's real. Um, it's insane. Uh, it's also kind of boring at the same time. It's really bizarre, really weird. Then, from 2013, I have a movie that I desperately wanted to have as one of my two bad picks for this, but it's a weird thing where it's so unavailable now. It used to be on Amazon Prime, but now it's just completely lost to the internet, which is such a bummer, because it's probably my pick for the most hilariously bad movie of the decade. It is Neil Breen's Fateful Findings. I can't really describe this movie. It is one of the most insane ego trips I've ever seen. It is the movie that introduced me to the weird ego of Neil Breen, who is a freaking architect in Arizona, who gets money to make these insane ego trip movies about how the government's corrupt and he's the only one that can save us. And... Uh, this is his crown jewel masterpiece. So he's done plenty of other like terribly bad, funny movies since, but this is the one that just like crystallizes sort of like all of the weird gloriousness of this terrible, terrible filmmaker. It's like imagine Tommy Wiseau, but with less personality and more of an ego, and you got Neil Breen with his magnum opus, Faithful Findings. Winter's Tale we just talked about, really bad, really terrible from 2014. Not gonna say much else. Uh, from 2016, a movie that uh, Casey previously mentioned that stars one of the stars of A Winter's Tale, Collateral Beauty. Um, it is a weird, huge cast ensemble movie about somebody, you know, having a rough go at life, and he's the big head of a corporation with Will Smith, and his buddies, Edward Norton, Kate Winslet, and Michael Penn, you're like, man, we need to cheer him up. Let's frame him for uh, basically being insane so he can to get fired, and we can end up getting his shares of the fucking corporation, and he'll be happier that he's not working. And that's just the start of where this fucking weird-ass movie goes, where it's so much once the played straight, it's like, oh no, this is a warm, accepting, fun movie about friendship and loss and getting over grief, and it's one of the most baffling big-budget studio movies I've ever seen. Another one uh, that's so incompetent from 2017 uh, is The Snowman, which Casey also referenced earlier in this episode, uh, where Michael Fassbender uh, plays a detective named Harry Hole, um, who tries to investigate a snowman murderer, um, and infamously was a movie that started production with not even a finished script whatsoever, and it shows, and it shows also that they didn't have enough time to complete shooting all the scenes that were in that incomplete script, apparently. Um, and it takes Thomas Alfredson, who delivered two of the better movies of the last several years with Let the Right One In and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, and then plops whatever the fuck this is out in a movie that might just completely end his career, which is a bummer, because he is actually a pretty talented filmmaker. Uh, but then again, you made The Snowman, so maybe it wasn't meant to be. Um, another one from 2017, I have uh, Colin Trevorrow's The Book of Henry. Uh, which is another movie that sort of plays in the collateral beauty spectrum of, oh, hey, this is a sweet, fun family movie about, like, a really precocious genius kid um, that keeps turning its fucking heels into weird genre places that feel so insulting and disturbing and weird and gross and horrific, but the movie plays it so sunny, even when things get, like, really dire. It's just like, this is a fun family romp of a movie. It's an Amblin movie. 
because uh, that's what Colin Trevorrow wants to do. He just wants to keep making, like, Amblin productions. Uh, but he can't really uh, make that work at all, because it's just, like, a massive, ungodly garbage fire. Now, from 2018, speaking of garbage fires, I have uh, Life Itself, which is the film from uh, This Is Us creator uh, Dan Fogelman, who was like, oh, hey, I want to make my movie that's sort of like a magnum opus of what I feel like life really means and what relationships are all about and what sort of legacy can kind of mean uh, with all, another all-star cast. And it's one of the most self-indulgent pieces of shit I've ever seen. It makes so many bizarre turns that feel like somebody who's like, oh, man, we're going to make you cry with this unexpected twist. And it's like, no, dude, you're just making me really scratch my head about why you would do this, why, like, Oscar Isaac, Olivia Wilde, Antonio Banderas, Olivia Cook. So many like talented people would bother showing up in this movie. It's just one of the most baffling misfires I've ever seen. That's another sort of train wrecking one. Like I can't believe I'm watching this, and that's incredibly interesting, if nothing else. But for my absolute worst of the decade, I was thinking about this a lot, um, and I was like, hmm, what movie exemplifies everything I hated about filmmaking in the 2010s? The worst bottom of the barrel stuff that like wastes a lot of talent, uh, tries to rip off a lot of much better movies, um, tries to maybe start something bigger that it can't really achieve, and just shows somebody in the director's chair who doesn't deserve it whatsoever. Thought long and hard about it, and it just had to be. No. The Mummy. From 2017. I think this is a gross waste of money on every level. I think it's just a garbage example of Universal like, hey, let's try and do the Dark Universe thing. And none of the characters work. Everyone's just like a really scummy piece of shit. Um, It's the worst Tom Cruise performance I think I've seen in a bit. Um, It shows that he maybe should just stick to Mission Impossible movies. Uh, Sorry, Top Gun, but I think it's it's maybe a lost cause. Uh, It's another bad Russell Crowe performance. It's all about universe building without building any kind of story or engaging characters or anything. All the action sequences look like shit. And it's Alex Kurtzman who has been just, like, failing upwards once again, just, like, keeps making all these big fucking leaps to, like, oh, you're gonna run the fucking Dark Universe and direct this movie as your first fucking movie. And uh, it was a massive misfire that completely dunked a Dark Universe in all sorts of ways, so it ends up becoming this weird, sort of grafted initial, like, head of a worm that couldn't extend out to the rest of a worm. It's just, like, a decapitated worm head of a movie. I'm surprised that was your first one. I really, really am. Oh, it's not what I would expect it. We will discuss that, I guess, in a bit. Uh, but Adam, you have a much more loving list to talk about. Why don't you talk about your best list? Okay. Now, this was insanely, insanely difficult, Thomas. Like, you had a bad time with it. I also had... You're gonna have a bad time. <laughs> so, just to, just to start name it off randomly, like we talked about. The first one I'll name off, I got Drive. Uh... I my God, what is it? by Nicholas Wending Riefen or however the fuck you say his name? I love this movie. I love the soundtrack to this movie. Uh, also, kind of proved to me that Gosling can kind of be the shit, and that uh, you know he's like kind of like a William Hurt, Kevin Costner type actor. Also, Albert Brooks is a bad guy, fucking fantastic. Then I have uh, Snowpiercer. I love dirty, dark sci-fi. I love great acting, confined spaces movies, uh, adventure movies, you know, fixed point sort of ideas. And uh, I, I absolutely love Snowpiercer. It's dark, it's fucked up, but it's thrilling. Next, I have another Ryan Gosling movie. I have Blade Runner 20, 2049. 
my opinion, the perfect way to do that horrible term that they use, but you got to use it, the legacy sequel, where you take a movie that existed 20, 30, 40 years ago and do a sequel. Blade Runner 2049, to me, is the formula. Next, I have a movie we've covered on the show. I have Moonlight. Uh, We've already talked about it quite a bit, but Moonlight is one of the movies that, when I saw it, it had been a long time since I got really emotional in a movie, and Moonlight did that, and I will never forget it, and I will always love it for that. Uh, then I have, I want to say it was last year, but it have been the year before, I have Annihilation with Natalie Portman. Uh, kind of for the same reason I said with Snowpiercer. It's sci-fi, it's, it's dark, it's disturbing, uh, just really, really well acted, and also another great performance from Tessa Thompson as well. Uh, then I have Hell or High Water with Chris Evans, Ben Foster, and Jeff Bridges. He's absolutely fantastic in it, as well as an always good Ben Foster, and a really, really sort of uh, shooting higher than I knew he could, uh, Chris Pine. I, I just really, really love that movie, and also a fantastic soundtrack. Next, I have Sicario uh, by Denis Villeneuve, who also did Blade Runner 2049. This guy is proving to be my favorite director of the last 10 years, and I'm super excited for Dune and where he's going to go next. Sicario is just a really sort of violent, disturbing take on the war on drugs and how far you know, our government potentially probably, unfortunately, does go to uh, sort of establish dominance in countries that we maybe don't even belong in. Um, then I have your number one pick, from last week, I have Fury Road. Uh, everything you said about it, I completely agree with. I can't agree more. I think Fury Road is also a really, really good way to do a legacy sequel. Next, I have The Witch, which is my favorite horror film easily of the last 10 years. I think it's beautifully shot, acted. I have zero complaints about The Witch. And my number one is... My favorite comic book movie of the last 10 years. All right, let's do this one last time. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I cannot gloat about this movie. It, to me, it's the best Spider-Man movie ever. It's one of the best animated movies I've ever seen. Fantastic soundtrack. Wonderful voice acting. A lot of heart, a lot of connections, a lot of jokes, a lot of everything. If you can find a fall within to the Spider-Verse, then I can't fuck with you no more. I think it's a perfect movie. All right, yeah, we, we did have a bit of recurring stuff. Really glad to hear that. But now, Casey, you have an interesting sort of angle that you were going to go with with your best list, right? Yeah, I did not want to repeat things that either of you would have said, so I essentially had a list drawn up with a few extras. This isn't my definitive, here's the best of the 2010s, because there are some things that I knew had already been brought up, either in these episodes or in previous episodes that I didn't want to dwell on. Uh, But I'll just start as a number 10, Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, I really love really weird horror movies. I really love that 2019 was the year that... People who got their start in horror did their second uh, movie and just threw everything in. Again, the idea of like a kitchen sink of a movie. This is like that. It's weird. It's metaphorical. I don't even know if I get it. I don't know if there's anything to get, but I love it. Number nine is Carol. I like that it's a very old way to tell a new story. It feels like an old Hollywood movie. It borrows blocking from classic films. Uh, Number eight is Inside Out. 
just because I like the idea of showing something very emotionally mature with a target audience of five years old and letting it take it seriously. Number seven is Lady Bird. I'm saying this because I want to talk about how much I loved the editing of Greta Gerwig movies. Uh, this, and I also got it with Little Women. And if she had a huge movie that she had to edit down into a small movie, it doesn't feel like something was intentionally omitted or left out, but you also get a sense that these people are going on in a world much bigger than them. Like, I love when she shows up to her best friend's house on prom night, her best friend is crying and you just get a sense of she was on her own little adventure, this entire movie that you did not even get to see. There's a lot of stuff like that, that I adore every time I watch even just tiny moments. Number six is hereditary. I love throwbacky horror movies. This is very throwback. I like horror movies as metaphor. This is an entire metaphor for the trauma and the terrible things you might be passing down from parent to child, which was a big factor in my own personal life going into this decade. So this movie really stuck with me. Number five, Blind Spotting. Again, you guys have done an episode on it, but echoing what you guys said, it's really great. It's a great companion piece to Sorry to Bother You. They make for a great double feature. David Diggs gave the best performance of last year, and the fact that he was not nominated uh, bugs me every single second of every single day. It's an amazing first film. This is a great decade for debut filmmakers. And number four is The Babadook. Again, horror as metaphor. Again, super cheaply made. I was in one of the first screenings they ever showed in the US. I knew nothing about the movie. It got done. I stood up and said, that is what I wanted a remake of The Haunting to be. Not knowing I would get a remake of The Haunting this year that I would love. Uh, number three is The World's End. It is my favorite of Edgar Wright's movies. It is far and away my favorite of the Cronetto trilogy. I think that... If those movies are the wild and crazy Friday night, this is the Monday morning. This is the hangover. This is Simon Pegg looking at the Nick Frost characters and trying to do a very tragic version of that while Nick Frost gets to play the Simon Pegg character. It is brutal. It is painful. It is hilarious. It is well shot. It is a blast. Uh, number two is The Last Jedi. This is my favorite Star Wars movie. This, If this movie asked me to start a holy war, I might do it. Uh, this is what I've wanted the franchise to be for decades. And number one is... One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Oh, please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Inside Lowen Davis. I don't have any grander scheme of this. I just kind of love this movie. Yeah, that was one we previously talked about too, and we we agree yep. that it's a it's a pretty great one. Mm. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, um, and I mean some of those like I'm I'm glad you mentioned Last Jedi. That was one that like has grown and more in my estimation, honestly, since it came out originally. I know we're losing a lot of like listeners right now. I guess uh, maybe, hopefully not. No, let them let them oh, tweet at me. Who. <laughs> let them uh, tweet at me. I will fight people on the Last Jedi every second of every day. This is the. This is the hill I will die on. We didn't. We haven't talked much about Rise of Skywalker because um, we were talking about good movies mostly here. Um, but like, especially after seeing that one, maybe appreciate even some of like the smaller missteps I had with Last Jedi even more. Honestly, after that, we won't dwell on that necessarily. The internet's already doing that currently. Uh, to I guess go back a bit. Uh, Adam was bringing this up in terms of my worst list. Uh, just to get some of that out of the way. Um, yeah, why were you surprised necessarily that I hated the Mummy that much? I just thought because the Mummy's such a tepid. Fucking to me, I expected it to be terrible. Uh, so I was I was just really surprised that you had that much hate for it. 
And to even go back further to last episode when we did our honorable mentions, like for the best and the worst, one that I cannot believe I didn't fucking bring up that should have been on my fucking list was Yoga Hosers. Yeah, and I mean, I'm it's. Yeah, I, I think, bet it wasn't. I think it's just because we previously talked about it in the Kevin Smith episode. I mostly tried to avoid ones that we talked about previously, um, aside from obviously Dracula. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that one is very. Very much to me. But, you know, I'll say this as much as, like, I hated Yoga Hosers. At the very least, that's, like, such a small potatoes movie that it really, like, isn't some giant slap in the face to me. I feel like with all of the resources that, like, a mummy had, you know, tackling, admittedly, not my favorite of the Universal Monsters, but at least one you could maybe do the most valuable stuff with because it's not that, like, engaging a character necessarily of the mummy. And turning out just, like the biggest giant studio turd possible. Like, it's all of the worst things about all of the major blockbusters of this decade in one package. It's like, I could have talked about any number, like, oh, a uh, Fan 4 stick or some of the other ones you might have mentioned from last week, or just, like, mm-hmm. a bunch of the big or more forgettable movies. This is the one that has the biggest stink to me because it has all of those elements so down the line. Right down to, specifically, like, my least favorite thing about the movie is how the Universal shamelessly lifts from a property they own with uh, American World in London with the Jake Johnson character in the most, like, Ugh. massive fuck-you way possible in such a shitty, yeah. creative way. It's such a fucking disaster. <laughs> we did this last episode. Give me three more bad ones that didn't make your list. Without not talk about them, just boom, boom, boom. Um... You know, uh, I'll go with ones you maybe didn't mention. Um, Knock Knock, which has the funniest Keanu Reeves performance. Hilarious, uh, terrible movie. There's this horror anthology movie uh, called Kuso, um, which is one of the most, like, unfathomably unentertaining things I've ever seen, for sure. And you know what? This is is one I've heard a lot of praise for. I just want to go out with, like, I'm, like, not a fan of this movie whatsoever. A lot of people liked me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. I think that is one of the most twee, stupid, like, attempts at trying to do, like, a coming-of-age story I've seen in a decade full of great coming-of-age stories. That was one where I heard so many people loved it, and it's like, this is a fucking aggressively annoying movie. Terrible. Yeah, I didn't catch that one. I, I have zero interest. All right, uh, quick three for me. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows. You know, I mean, obviously, it's What We Do in the Shadows. I love it. Uh, John Wick, Chapter 1. And 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, I uh, forgot just, about 10 Cloverfield Lane. I love that movie. Fucking John Goodman alone. It's worth it for that. Yeah, definitely one of those where, like, I wish it wasn't tra- attached to that franchise. Because I know. Well, it I know. so well I, I, know. <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, and you know what? The thing is, if it wasn't attached to that franchise, I don't think the how they end it would have been as bothersome. Because yeah. the the spaceships come in, you're like, well, wait a minute, this isn't the fucking monster, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but it's it's that weird thing uh. where like that that when they originally introduced the idea that that was gonna be like an anthology franchise, I was more on board with it with specifically even that move where it's like, oh no, it doesn't really connect to Cloverfield, and I'm I'm happy it doesn't. And then Cloverfield Paradox just like shit around that. <laughs> Cloverfield Paradox, like fuck all that, it's directly tied in. <laughs> It's so dumb the way that it's done. It's so bad. Oh, it's did they? T- God damn it! Because I skipped Cloverfield Paradox, and oh, I don't think d- I missed. Just a spoiler for you. Um, literally, most of the movie has nothing to do with it until like all of a sudden at the very end, like there's been this giant monster attack on Earth that they kind of keep hinting at, and then what pops out of the clouds but the Cloverfield monster. That's the end of the movie. But a giant, giant version of it. Right, that literally pops out of the clouds, so it's even so much larger. Yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> uh, but Casey, what about what are a few maybe honorable mentions you didn't mention on your list? Uh, off the top of my head, Booksmart, Beale Street, Katak, uh, Big Six, Social Network, those four rock. Yeah, okay, yeah, those are those are all really good ones. Um, especially Big Sick. Big Sick was one of my favorite romantic comedies of this decade, just in terms of like, oh, really yeah. going from a personal story. Um, it just really worked, and it's uh, got a great dual thing from uh, Ray Romano and particularly Holly Hunter as uh, M. Levy Gordon's uh, parents. Uh, phenomenal. I loved both of their turns in that movie. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I will only comment in terms of some of the stuff on your list, Adam, uh, that Believe It or 2049, I agree, is probably the best example of a like, oh. sequel thing to the point where I like it more than the original movie. I dig Blade Runner, but I, I think like that one just has more of an emotional resonance with the same sort of like big um, architecture and stuff like that in production design. And I'll just say that like again, I guess spoilers if you didn't see it, the whole sequence like after everything's done, the whole like arc for Ryan Gosling's character is one of my favorites in like a big studio movie where instead of him being the chosen one, he's just a guy who plays a very important role in getting the actual chosen one to their place. I love that. Right. And him laying on the fucking snow is so beautiful. I love that whole bit of that movie. Um, I think we can uh, move on to our feedback section here, um, where uh, we asked you all, um, usually on every Monday, about um, our, you know, whatever we're covering. We ask you for your good and bad picks. Um, and this time, uh, because as I said last week, we were doing a two-parter. Last week, we asked you all for uh, the worst of the 2010s, and now we asked you for the best of the 2010s. First off, I've got Rachel Hillis, who says, uh, Get Out, The Hateful Eight. Force Awakens, Rogue One, Crazy Rich Asians, The Shape of Water, Call Me By Your Name, Grand Budapest Hotel, Inside Out, Life of Pi, Les Miserables, uh, the live-action Beauty and the Beast, uh, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, Paddington, Fury Road, Cabin in the Woods, and Spider-Verse. Uh, Jason Broomfield says, uh, I had fun thinking about this. Um, I think for me it's gotta be Mad Max Fury Road, Moonlight, and The King's Speech. Uh, Amanda Leonard said, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, because it was fun, good casting, good tunes. I've seen it maybe ten times, never bothers me. Mad Max Fury Road, all around, it did justice to the original series. Uh, Andre Rogau um, says, John Wick, The Raid, Ex Machina, The Guest, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Deadpool, Hunt for the Wilder People, and What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, Jacob Schott said, uh, Rogue One, Hereditary, The Witch, uh, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, Interstellar, Get Out, Babadook, and Birdman, to name a few. Uh, way more horror movies than I thought I would ever enjoy in the past decade. Uh, Joel Copeland at Real Joel Copeland actually gave us his list, um, which he's got number 10, Drive, number 9, Her, number 8, The Social Network, number 7, Lady Bird, number 6, Under the Skin, number 5, The Tree of Life, number 4, Moonlight, number 3, Margaret, number 2, Shoplifters, and number 1, A Separation. And then uh, James Rodriguez uh, has this to say, uh, he says... Moonlight, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, The Farewell, Hereditary, Boy, Blade Runner 2049, Paddington 2, Mad Max Fury Road, Drive, Cabin in the Woods, Short Term 12, Your Name, and 13th. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of great movies mentioned on there. Uh, our, both of our lists have a lot in common with a lot of those. Yeah, and even Casey's list, too. A lot of uh, ones from him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, ones that you mentioned, Casey, that are also mentioned here. Um, I definitely agree about, like, I think Hereditary is at least one of the more engrossing of, like, many great horror movies that happened this decade. I was, like, so engrossed particularly. It's got, if nothing else, like, I heard some people have issues with that movie. No one can disagree that Tony Collette's performance is, like, one mm-hmm. of the premier performances of the decade, if nothing else. She is so on point in that fucking movie. Um, and then Inside Out, I would say, is my favorite Pixar movie of that decade, and maybe ever... I think the more I think about it, it, it's just like so perfectly put together that it's only maybe paralleled by like 
Toy Story 2 and a couple of the other really top-tier ones. It's definitely in, like, the very top tier of like those. And especially in the decade where Pixar, like, kind of faltered. This was the decade where, like, it started out with Cars 2, and we got a lot of bad sequels and prequels and stuff. That was the one that really shined. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, any of those that uh, sparked your fancy, Adam, that maybe we haven't mentioned on our list? I'm definitely one of the ones with Hereditary where I'm like, I really like it, but I do have some issues with it. But I do agree that Tony Collette is obviously fucking fantastic. Um, I do think it was a good call in Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that might still be one of the better Marvel like firsts, if you get what I mean. Like the first in a series, I think Guardians of the Galaxy still might be the best one. If not, it's damn near near the top. Rogue One, I also really like. Rogue One is good because it gave you uh, what, as a kid, you wanted to see Darth Vader do, even though it was the last five minutes of the movie. It, that was awesome. And, and then Andre threw in The Raid and Ex Machina, which also almost made my list, both of those movies. I think those are absolutely fantastic films. And uh, I like Get Out, uh, Hateful Eight. Eh, no, I'm good. But again, a lot of ones that almost went in my list, man. A lot of them. So all pretty much all pretty good calls. It's only very, very few that I disagree with. Yeah, I would definitely say The Raid, and even with a lot of, like, bloat problems with its sequel, Raid 2, um, those are some of the best action sequences of the year. Even with, like, a John Wick, um, there was, like, a bit of a drought of action for especially the first half of this decade. Um, and then, But like, with the exceptions of, like, these two movies and the first John Wick, I completely oh, agree. Dude. You gotta throw Dread in there, too. I didn't even think of Dread. Which is very similar to The Raid, which is very interesting, just yeah. in terms of, like, a structural level. They're both very yeah, similar movies. Yeah, Dread. Dread's an honorable mention for me, too. That's a good one. Oh, yeah, that's one of the ones that also was, like, in, like, that big-ass top 50 mm-hmm. list of sorts that I had. You know, fuck you, Thomas. <laughs> this was a pain in the ass, man. <laughs> no, we, we, we had a mutual suffering you know, to that extent. But I also, Guardians of the Galaxy is probably the most I've rewatched of any MCU movie. Um, it's, it's one that just really stuck out. Um, and I wouldn't ask, I, we've had this argument before, Adam, but I would say Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is one of the rare ones of those MCU movies that has gotten better every time I've seen it. I think it just is like a great way of developing a lot of those characters for me. And also just like really pushing um, things in terms of like an emotional standpoint for the MCU in my eyes. Okay. <laughs> You're never going to see that eye on that one, man. Pro- never probably not. No, no, no. Um, but, um, Casey, any of these spark your fancy, too, that were listed? Blade Runner 2049 is, like, I never heard the phrase, Lega sequel, but that is that is probably the best of them, and it's my favorite of those two movies. Uh, Kevin Woods, I nearly put on mine, except that you... I believe it was on one of yours last week. No. God, what the fuck podcast was I listening to then? <laughs> the, one, the one that fucking Bill Nye was on, I guess. <laughs> oh, it was Double Edge, Double Gill. Oh, it's the one with the fish. Yes. Oh. Yes. We, we, we keep getting those guys' mail. Uh, Spider-Verse, again, was definitely a contender until it was on both of y'alls. Uh, yeah. Guardians 1 is good. I just prefer Guardians 2 so significantly that I don't think I'll watch Guardians 1 again if that's an option. Damn. Now there's a hot take. No, I, maybe it's who I am, but stories about gaining and losing daddies uh, kind of are hitting me right now. I'm sorry. What can you do, homie? <laughs> yes, homies. For life. Uh, but all right. I, 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 we want to thank everybody for all that feedback there. We also had a bit of feedback related to um, our previous episode um, about the um, best and worst of the decade, particularly about the fanatic, 
um, where uh, first off we had James Rodriguez uh, again say, I decided to watch The Fanatic before listening to the latest episode of Devil H. Devil Bill, and I regret my decision. Travolta is cartoonish in this, which wants to be um, about the relationship between obsession, obsessive fandom and celebrities. It's just about killing time until the grisly stuff comes around. Um, yeah, I mean, case, you know, uh, James, if we, yeah. if you'd listened, we would have warned you specifically not to bother watching it, uh, but you decided to be brave and try and watch it there. Um, and then Brian Kane even said, I'll listen, but first I gotta go take a poo. Which, of course, is referencing the classic oh, line that John Travolta says in the film. You know, I forgot, like, when we were doing that last week, I, we didn't mention uh, my favorite line of the movie, uh, where there's a point where John Travolta's about to choke okay. somebody out, and he says, I wish Freddy Krueger would cut off your head and then roll into the street and get hit by a car! Which is the line where I, like, died. I died laughing. <laughs> that stupid, oh. fucking awful line. Uh, so fucking good. So, so fucking bad. Casey, have you seen The Fanatic? Especially after our lovely discussion. The scene here discussion was, was kind of a sine wave of, oh, I need to see this to you. No, I don't need to see this. Good, we did our job. You should have been like Casey, James. Actually, listen, we would have told you no. Uh, uh, but we want to thank some people before we head out of here. We want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that's used for our show as well. And thanks, of course, to Mr. Casey Gerard. Casey, it's lovely to have you back on. And I uh, got anything to plug? Uh, just my Twitter handle, at the caser. Uh, that's about it, until I finally get uh, finish up on my re-edit of Titanic that doesn't have Leonardo DiCaprio. So, uh, took 12 years. Oh, it took 12 years to make? That's interesting. It took 12 years to take Leo out of that movie. So do you replace him with anybody, or is it just nothing? No, uh, this is... Sorry, it's a joke, but it's real. It's, uh, it's just a thing I'm working on in my spare time, uh, on and off, where... I want to do a recut of Titanic being only historical and you can't take Rose out because important stuff gets told to her or she says important things for like, that's how you learn there's not enough lifeboats and why that is, but you can cut Leo out almost entirely. And I want to see if I can do that. That'll be interesting. Definitely check our Reddit slash alternative cuts for that one. Um, and, uh, we also, of course, I uh, want to encourage you to follow us on at DEDBpod on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that's where we have um, our little questionnaires about, you know, our best and worst, whatever, asking you guys out there so we can be read on the show. And uh, you can also submit feedback to uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com for that as well. Um, and, of course, you can also uh, follow us, uh, follow me individually at Not the Who's Tommy, where I post all my various musings and such about different things. Um, and I also do some writing, uh, one at marianithomas.wordpress.com, the award-winning blog Adam was talking about earlier, that he's uh, such a fan of. Um, and uh, if you get on there right about now, I believe there should be a little bit about um, my personal uh, best of 2019, um, which I didn't do a whole decade list on there written because I obviously wanted to save it for this. Um, and then, of course, uh, I want to... Definitely shout out TrueSuperheroFans.com, where I also do some writing and such. Uh, that's definitely, uh, you know, it's back up, and we've been posting stuff regularly now. And, uh, Adam, you still do some stuff at Ghoulish Courts? I do. I do. Uh, like I said last week, I've been kind of out of it for a couple of weeks. Uh, with the holidays, the move, uh, the whole house was sick. So it's been a, been a little rough going the last couple of weeks, but, yep, I'm still there. I'm still doing custom artwork. Uh, you mentioned you... Uh, heard the plug on the show. I cut you a discount, a uh, pretty big discount, and uh, whatever you need, I can basically uh, do. 
Yeah, and uh, for more great content of the two of us just uh, joking around, uh, you can definitely subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're also on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. If you're listening to this on the ESO Network, uh, why not dig into the archives for the first several episodes that we didn't post up here? And also make sure to rate, review, or at least just share us around to give the show more visibility. That's uh, that's what you need. It's like the underrated gems of the 2010s. You need to just uh, get us out there in the ether. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the big fucking deal is at this point. <laughs> like, let's just go. Get the light out. Get the, get the light out, yes. Uh, like we'll be doing right now, as we do, uh, as we finally finish this episode, with our picking for next week. So now we're going back to uh, doing some normal stuff a bit more, um, which is maybe something to say, uh, given our next director maybe a bit out of the norm to some respect, but also kind of creating a lot of norms for genre filmmaking with, uh, he's having a birthday, his 72nd birthday, so we decided to do an episode about John Carpenter films. Sue's a director we both love, despite the fact that our only John Carpenter movie on the series that we've done is uh, Escape from L.A. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, which was originally one of my choices. Like, oh, fuck, we already did that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, though, interestingly, um, even though we haven't discussed anything on this particular podcast, uh, we actually first podcasted at him with a John Carpenter film on a different show back in the day. That's true. They live. Yes. Great, great movie. Which, uh, even though um, I have the good picks, and as you mentioned, you have the bad picks, I did not choose They Live for that very reason, um, but there's definitely a lot of other good John Carpenter movies and a fair amount of bad ones to discuss. So you have your two picks, and you've chosen numbers between 1 and 10 for those, and I've done the same for my two picks. And when we have a guest like Casey, they pick number two and 1 and 10 for both our choices. That uh, gets us our good and bad feature for the following episode. So Casey, for my two good picks, number two and 1 and 10. All right, so my favorite John Carpenter movie came out in 82, so for good, I'll say the number eight. Um, this is interesting. Uh, I have the, uh, what a lot of people say is an underrated one of his, but one that when I watched this the first and only time I've seen it so far, wasn't the hugest fan. Hope to revisit it here and maybe uh, get, gain a bit more appreciation for it. I have 1987's Prince of Darkness. Oh, fuck. Uh, I, I'm kind of in your boat. Here, Thomas. I think I've seen it twice, and it was both of them a long time ago. Oh, all right. So we'll see. It'll be a revisit. So yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting for sure. Um, and that was, of course, at number eight for Casey. Um, but then at number two, funnily enough, um, I had another one that I think gets lost in the shuffle. It was his first sort of big film that got him some attention? Uh, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, that's a good one. Also, I haven't seen that in a while too, though. So I don't know if that would hold up. So actually, two choices I was not expecting. No, yeah. I decided to go a bit more against the grain, like a John Carpenter did in the late 70s, early 80s, I guess. That's my excuse. Anyway. Yeah. So now for your two bad picks, Adam. Casey's got to pick a number two and one and ten. All right. So I picked a for the first part, two for the second part. Number two. Number two on the dot. We have John Carpenter's magnum opus, uh... Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Oh, fuck. No, I thought this would happen. <laughs> it had to, right? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> a Chevy Chase vehicle. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Oh, we already did nothing but and trouble. It, no. Yeah, well, I'm sure Chevy Chase will pop up again at some point. Uh, at number nine, I had Ghosts of Mars. Okay. Which I'm glad I wasn't chosen because I don't want to talk about that fucking movie. That's one I've avoided. I've never seen that particular one for a lot uh, of reasons. Don't, just don't watch it. No, yeah. Yeah, don't. And now you don't have to. No. So good for you. Yeah. It sounds like your double bill next week will not be double edged. 
I don't know. Like, like I said, Prince of Darkness know. is one that a lot of people say is underrated, and it's been a while since I've seen it. So I'm, I'm very curious to give that a shot again. But uh, that is the end of our discussion here. And on that note, this has been running long, guys. Let's just end this for the love of God. End this. <laughs> bye. Oh, bye. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.